Well, friends, because what we just sung is true, let's go to the Lord now in our need and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father, it's appropriate that we acknowledge our neediness before you. It would be wrong for us to acknowledge our own strength or our own ability, our own righteousness. We come to you and ask you, as we do every Lord's Day, to show up here by your Spirit and minister to us and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine your word, that you would give us eyes to see what it says. You would give us hearts that would receive what it says. We pray for ourselves this morning that we would see you as you are from your word and that we would then rightly see ourselves as we are from your word. And then show us Christ from your word that we might trust him, that our faith might be sustained and strengthened in him and continue to do your work in us by your spirit to conform us into the image of Jesus. And we pray these things for ourselves, for our good, and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, the Bible is made up of various kinds of literature. If you've read much of it, you are aware of this. There are different genres within it. There is quite a bit of narrative text within the Bible. There are also the gospel accounts, which are also largely narrative accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. We also have letters in the New Testament, the epistles, as they're so-called, that are written, generally speaking, to churches. But we also have poetic literature in the Scripture, and then we have wisdom literature in the Scripture as well. All of it is profitable, and all of it is useful. And it's all a part, regardless of the genre, regardless of the kind of literature it is, all of it is a part of the grand story of Scripture, which we rejoice in that grand story of God and of His plan of redemption to save a people through His Son, Jesus Christ, who would accomplish everything that God's people need in order to live with God forever. Last week, we finished a series in Mark's Gospel, and today we begin a nine-part series for the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to Proverbs 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about that. We'll be getting the verses to Proverbs 1 on the screen for you to follow along. I'm about to do a rather lengthy introduction to Proverbs, given that this is the first sermon of the series. So don't be alarmed if this introduction seems longer than normal. It most certainly is, I assure you. The Proverbs were written, the majority of them, by Solomon. Some in the room may be familiar with Solomon and his name and his life. He was the son of King David. He was known for his wisdom. Underneath his reign and rule, the kingdom of Israel expanded to its really pinnacle of greatness. Now also, because of Solomon's sin later in his life, the kingdom would then be split and things would go in a bad direction after Solomon's life. That's another conversation for another time. Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom. God told him, you can have anything from me that you would like to have. And Solomon asked for wisdom that he might lead and rule well. And God was happy to answer his prayer and give him what he had asked. And in his wisdom, Solomon wrote not only Proverbs, but also the book of Ecclesiastes, which some may be familiar with in the room. The book of Proverbs a lot of times is presented as though it's just simply a book of practical wisdom. Like here are some really good moral truths for you to be aware of. Here are some good principles for living. It can sometimes almost be reduced to a kind of Christian version of like Aesop's fables or something. Like if you abide by these things, then your life will go better. But there's a lot more to the Proverbs than practical wisdom. This becomes very clear when we read Proverbs in the context of the whole Bible, in the context of redemptive history. We remember that when God made the world and he made human beings uniquely in his image, he made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He made a covenant with them that all would go well for them, that they would have a perfect existence with him forever in perpetuity should they do as he had asked them to do, to reign over creation in his stead. He gave them all kinds of good food to eat he only gave them one prohibition in this covenant. He said, you can eat of anything that you want other than that tree over there. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of that tree, the covenant that God had made with them was broken. And judgment came as a result. Sin entered the world. 
But even as sin was entering the world, God made another covenant with Adam and Eve and thereby the rest of humanity. A covenant that we refer to as the covenant of grace, where he promised a redeemer who would come, who would ransom God's people, who would crush the head of the enemy of God's people, the great serpent, Satan himself. He promised a deliverer. He promised a redeemer who would come. So after God makes that promise in the Garden of Eden, we know that he makes another promise to humanity through Noah, where he promises to sustain the creation. He promises not to destroy it again with a flood as he had in Noah's day. Many years later, he made a promise and a covenant with Abraham, where he told Abraham that he would make out of him a great nation, that he would bring a promised offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would make a people for himself who would be children of Abraham. Then years, many years after that, 400 plus years later, a man named Moses shows up on the scene. And God makes another covenant with Israel where he gave them his law. This covenant did not annul the promise that he had made with Abraham, but he revealed his law to his people. He told them how they were to live. He gave them those terms. And then after, many years after Moses, David, a king, was born in Israel, and God made a covenant with him as well. He made a promise to him that a son of his would reign forever on the throne of righteousness, would reign forever over the people of God in perfect righteousness and peace. And it is in this era under the Davidic covenant that the Proverbs were written. It is in this era under the law of Moses, yes, and in anticipation of the son of David, the Christ, who would reign forever. It is in this context that the Proverbs are written. So, given that all of that is true, the Proverbs are an expression of God's law in its various uses. The first use of God's law is to show us our sin and to drive us to our Redeemer, our Savior, the Christ. The Proverbs certainly function in that way. The second use of God's law is as a restraint against human evil. There are promises that are made in the law for abiding by it. There are penalties that are warned of and threatened for breaking it. We are taught right and wrong and good and bad by God's law. And the Proverbs certainly function that way. And then finally, in the third use of God's law, it functions as the perfect guide for our lives in Christ Jesus. As the redeemed, no longer under the law or condemned by it, it is our perfect guide for living. And the Proverbs absolutely function in that way as well. So we're going to see all of that as we make our way through the Proverbs, those things happening as an expression of the law of God. It's important for us to remember as we look at the Proverbs together for the next nine weeks, roughly, that we always interpret parts of the Bible in light of the whole. We interpret parts of the Bible in light of the whole. We've said this many times here, that if we don't understand the whole, we will do terrible things with the parts. And in addition to that, it needs to be said that we should never and must never pit one passage of Scripture against another. We should not do that. Sometimes that happens. People will kind of, in an irresponsible way, just kind of quote the Bible as though well, this is pitted against that, or this is contradictory to that. We should not do that. So it's important in light of all of those things that we remember that the same man, Solomon, who wrote Proverbs also wrote Ecclesiastes. That will matter for us in terms of how we understand Proverbs. Sometimes Proverbs is presented, as I alluded to earlier, that if you do these things outlined in Proverbs, if you are wise, and if you take these things to heart and put them to use, your life will go well, period, full stop. It depends on what you mean by well. It's important that we would not rip Proverbs from its context and interpret it in a vacuum. So here are some things that Proverbs will not do for us. It's important. What Proverbs will not do for us. It will not, they will not deliver us from the fallenness of the world. Proverbs will not guarantee us good circumstances. They will not deliver us from all suffering. They will not keep us from the toil that characterizes life under the sun. 
They won't keep us from ever knowing heartbreak. They will not deliver us from sorrow and pain altogether. They will not keep us from groaning like the rest of creation as we await the consummation of our redemption, right? The resurrection of our bodies. We will still groan. The Proverbs, this is big, will not deliver us from the struggle and the fight against sin. It's not as though we can apply wisdom and never fight sin anymore or never struggle against sin anymore. Proverbs will not deliver us from weakness. We will still be weak in and of ourselves. Proverbs, even if we abide by them, will not guarantee us clean and linear continual progress in life. And the Proverbs cannot even guarantee us that things will never fall apart in this world. But here are some things that the Proverbs will do. They will teach us the difference between wisdom and folly. It's good to consider the difference. This is wise and this is foolish. The Proverbs will teach us the difference between righteousness and evil. It's good that we understand the difference. These things are righteous and good. These things are evil and therefore bad. The Proverbs will teach us what pleases God. They will teach us what is good for us. The things that are taught as wisdom and righteousness are good for our lives. The things that are taught as foolishness and evil are bad for our lives. It's not complicated in that regard. The Proverbs will teach us how to be all kinds of good for our neighbor. That matters. The great commandments, the first and the second like unto it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to see that in Proverbs. But then love your neighbor as yourself. The Proverbs will help us in being all kinds of good for our neighbor. Because see, it's good that we always remember this. God is not in need of our good works, but our neighbors are in need of our good works. And then here's how this works. As our neighbors see our good works and profit from them, what do they then turn around and do? They give praise to our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16, 1 Peter 2, 12. So us loving our neighbor and being all kinds of good for our neighbor results not only in our neighbor's good, but it results in the praise and the glory and the honor of God. The Proverbs will help us with that. The Proverbs will be used of God as a tool of His loving discipline in our lives. Now, for some, that that combination of words, loving, discipline, it's like, well, how, how does that work? And we remember that God disciplines and corrects those whom he loves. He disciplines and corrects and shapes and forms and refines his children. So when something in Proverbs, or anywhere in God's word for that matter, stings you, we see it on the page and we're considering it together as we look at God's word and it pierces you. Because it's like, man, that nails me. I'm that. I'm foolish like that. Or I'm wicked like that. When it stings you, remember that God is doing good work in you. Remember that He loves you. Remember that He is teaching you. He is transforming you when you have those moments that hurt. And then ultimately, if we understand them rightly, the Proverbs will show us Christ. So in that sense, in them we find our salvation. Jesus is all over the Proverbs. And that may sound weird to say for some in the room who have not heard it taught like that. We will over and over be driven to Christ as our only hope of being found righteous before God. For example, in Proverbs 16, verse 6, it reads this way, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By covenant love and faithfulness, Whose faithfulness? God's and namely the Christ's faithfulness. Iniquity is atoned for. As we consider the Proverbs as our guide, we will be reminded again and again that the transformation of our lives does not occur in our own strength. The transformation of our lives occurs completely as a result of our union with Christ by faith. 
The fact that we are in Christ and have the Spirit of Christ in us is what guarantees and accomplishes the transformation of our lives. We will see Jesus in the Proverbs as wisdom personified. We will see him in the Proverbs as wisdom fulfilled. We will see him in the Proverbs as wisdom exemplified. And we will see him in the Proverbs as wisdom provided. Proverbs calls us to choose wisdom and not folly. It calls us to walk in paths of righteousness. And there's a clear acknowledgement throughout it that there will be failing and falling. We have the promise of Proverbs 16, verse 6, that I already read to us about iniquity being atoned for. And then we also have words like these from Proverbs 24, that the righteous falls seven times and rises again. We see in Proverbs that our wisdom and righteousness are flawed and imperfect at best, which is why we need the wisdom and righteousness of God that can only be found in Christ by faith. So just a practical note, I'm preaching the first nine chapters in Proverbs. I trust that's been clear from what I've said and even what's in your bulletin. This is because the first nine chapters lend themselves best to this kind of expositional preaching. Because in chapters 10 and beyond, you really just have individual sayings and proverbs that have major themes running throughout them but would be difficult to preach kind of chapter by chapter and so what I hope to do is preach these nine chapters that begin the book of proverbs but pull in verses and material and major themes from the entire book as we make our way through together we'll see these major themes come up repeatedly which I hope is going to be good it will allow us to kind of steep in them to meditate and reflect upon them in ways that we pray will be helpful and good for us through the series. So all of those comments by way of introduction, let's turn our eyes to the text. Let's turn our eyes to Proverbs chapter 1. And before we go any further, I'm going to read it for us, all 33 verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods and we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. 
But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want to preach the, the text itself. I hope to anyway. To communicate the text itself in three points. I'll give those to you one at a time. And then after we've made our way specifically through the text, looking at the text, we're going to consider three implications, three reflections from the text. It's a pretty simple plan. We'll take it one step at a time. Point number one, we're off and running. An inspired introduction. Point number one, an inspired introduction. So verses one through seven of Proverbs one serve as a kind of introduction for the entire book. They, in one sense, are almost a purpose statement. They let us know what Solomon's intentions are in writing them. We're told in verse 1 of Solomon, the author, and we've already considered him some today. He is the son of David, king of Israel. And then in verses 2 to 6, we see the goal of the Proverbs. In verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Those are straightforward things. In verse 3, to receive instruction in several things. To receive instruction, excuse me, in wise dealing. How to deal wisely with others. To receive instruction in righteousness. Not only how to be upright, but how to deal uprightly with other people, right? To receive instruction in justice. How to deal justly in the world and with others. And also to receive instruction in equity in how to be equitable, how to live equitably with others. In verse 4, we see that the Proverbs are to give prudence, to give wisdom to the simple. And simple is just a synonym for the unwise or the foolish, right? They're also to give knowledge and discretion to the youth who would not naturally have those things. Just quick tap of the brakes. It's not just youth who don't have those things. Right? What we should see there is that none of us naturally have those things. We're not born with knowledge and discretion. We all need to be taught what's right and true and good. We don't naturally gravitate to it. None of us just kind of get it you know, on our own. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the Proverbs exist to let the wise hear and increase in learning because we are always learning, right? Always learning. The Proverbs are for the one who understands to obtain guidance in understanding a proverb, in understanding a saying, and to gain understanding and guidance with respect to the interpretation of the words of the wise because we are always in need of guidance from God's truth. Another kind of tap of the brakes moment it's good for all of us to own the fact that none of us have arrived when it comes to wisdom and understanding and knowledge and maturity. None of us are fully sanctified yet. There's a serious problem that can occur when we think that we know more than we do. In humility, we submit ourselves to the word of God always being reformed and refined by the word of God as we look to it together. And then in verse 7, Solomon makes a big statement, like big words. He says, the fear or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So those who are truly wise and have true understanding are those who know who God is. And in knowing who God is, they then know and assess themselves. So this results if a person is fearing the Lord, living reverently and humbly before the Lord, and then rightly assessing him or herself. This results in reverence. This results in humility. And this results in repentance before God. This results in a posture very similar to the tax collector in Luke 18. If you remember that parable that Jesus told. He talks of the Pharisee who is thanking God for his own righteousness, even though he's acknowledged that God has made him so. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. And then he speaks of the, the public and the tax collector who stands afar off, who won't even lift his eyes to heaven, 
but beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Real wisdom and real knowledge produces a posture like that. Real wisdom and real knowledge, the fear of the Lord, results in sinners casting themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ because they know there's no other place to stand. On the flip side, you see the second half of verse 7, that fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this is the default position, the norm for all of fallen humanity. We do not like wisdom and instruction. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do us. We want to be ourselves, as we so often say. And then not only do we want to be able to be ourselves and go our own way, we want others to get on board that train and applaud us and cheer us on as we do. We do not take well to correction. Naturally, we do not. Not only do we not listen to it, not only do we not heed it, we hate it. We, we bucket, we bristle whenever people correct us. Sometimes we justify that by convincing ourselves that the one doing the correcting is wrong. And that may be true when we're dealing with a human being, but that is not true of God. God is always right. But we bristle even at the wisdom and the instruction and the correction of God, naturally. Which is why we need the Spirit of God and the grace of God that we might respond well. This brings us to the second section of Proverbs 1 and point number 2. I've just entitled this, quite simply, an exhortation, stay away from sin. Stay away from sin. So in that sense, I rejoice in the fact that Christianity is unfathomably deep, but it is not complicated. It is not complicated. It is quite simple in so many respects. Stay away from sin. In verses 8 and 9, we see Solomon addressing my son, his son. Much of what's written in Proverbs takes the form of instruction of parents to children, or more specifically, a father to a son. And in these two verses, verses 8 and 9, the exhortation is for the son to hear his father's instruction and to not neglect his mother's teaching. Why? Quite simply, because they are good for him. You can see that with this illustration. They're a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The instruction of your parents is a good thing in your life. Don't neglect it. Then in verses 10 to 19, he goes on to talk quite directly to his son saying, do not consent to the enticement of sinners. He says that straightforwardly in verse 10. If sinners entice you, my son, do not consent. And then paints a picture in verses 11 to 14 of a very shady plan for unjust gain. If people come to you, if men come to you with a plan of how to get all kinds of stuff, but doing it this way by harming other people, he reiterates to his son, verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Don't go there. He then explains why in verses 16 and following. Son, don't go there. Hold back your foot from their paths because their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. They are quick to hurt people if that's what it takes. But in reality, verse 18, you see this. These men, while harming others and gaining all of these things for themselves, are really committing figurative suicide. They are killing themselves. They are ruining their own lives. They lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Verse 19, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. And you could substitute in that unjust gain or greedy for unjust gain. You can insert any kind of sin there, right? Such are the ways of everyone who pursues these various things that God tells us are not good for our lives. It takes away the life of the one who does it, who possesses it. 
So in Scripture, God, he doesn't always pull back the curtain in every single passage. He often will give us instruction and leave it at that. This is what's good for you and this is what isn't. But it's wonderful when God does pull back the curtain. It's cool in this section of Scripture how Solomon the father explains his warning to his son. Son, don't go with sinners who entice you. Here's why. Quite simply, it will wreck and ruin your life. Don't do it. It may very well take your life, son. Don't go there. At this point, brothers and sisters, it's good for us to own this and to confess that this is true, that sin no matter how attractive it may feel or seem in the moment, sin never leads anywhere good. Never has, never will. It might, because of the corruption of our flesh, because of the weakness that still is in all of us, because of the inclination in our flesh towards evil, sin might look good momentarily. It promises that it can give us what we want. It promises that it can give us what we long for and what we crave. That word craving is, an, is a really an appropriate description of the flesh and the sinful desires that are in us. Because it has that kind of a feeling to it sometimes. It's a craving for something. And sin says, I can satisfy you. I can give you what you want. It sometimes is gratifying and satisfying for a moment. But brothers and sisters, sin will bleed us out. It will bleed us out. It robs people of joy. Sin robs us of peace. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. And it wrecks lives. It's good that we would talk this way with one another. You heard said several times this morning in the prayer of confession, how we so often belittle our sin. We should never do that. In belittling sin, we domesticate it. We make it sound okay. Make it seem like, well, and yeah, it's just kind of, it's bad, but it's not that bad. It might do me harm, but it's not going to ruin my life. Not true. We can uphold the fact that because we're fallen and in Adam and still sinners, that sin is normal for us unfortunately, and that sin is never okay. We uphold both. And we talk honestly with one another about the horrors of sin and how devastating sin is. We don't try to whitewash it away. We don't try to relativize it and dumb it down. This is why even in preaching the law of God, one of the things that we strive to do in this church always is to preach the law of God in all of its holiness so that every one of us will never make the mistake of thinking that we can do it. So that we know that we're crushed by the law of God and His perfect standard. Because oftentimes we delude ourselves into thinking that we're doing better than we are. None of those things are helpful to us in the battle against sin. The fact that we know that sin is bad and yet still do it, speaks to the depth of our corruption. That's another thing that we need to own. I know sin is bad in my spirit. I don't want to do it, yet I find myself still doing it. Wretched man that I am. It's good that we would know that. That we would own that reality about ourselves because that alone should drive us to Jesus. Quite simply, the words of Solomon to his son. Son, here are some things that are sinful and wicked and stay away from them. We're going to be considering that over and over as we make our way through the Proverbs. Point number three. If point two was stay away from sin, point three is also an exhortation. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Again, shocking in its simplicity, but wonderful in its simplicity. In this section, verses 20 to 33, wisdom is depicted as a woman calling out to the simple, calling out to the foolish, to repent of their foolishness and to seek wisdom. And in particular, turn from your foolishness and seek wisdom before it's too late. 
So wisdom says in verses 22 and following, how long will you love being unwise? How long will you delight in scoffing? And how long will you hate knowledge? Verse 23, if you would just turn and listen to me, I would increase your wisdom. And then in verses 24 to 28, an indictment. But you would not listen when I called. So I will laugh at your calamity and mock you when terror strikes you. At some point you'll call upon me wisdom, but it will be too late. And then in verses 29 to 33, wisdom again depicted as a woman crying in the streets, continues on and says that because you hated knowledge and didn't choose fear of the Lord, and because you would have none of my counsel and despised my correction, you will eat the fruit of your own way and will have the fill of your own devices. In other words, you'll be left to your own designs. That is a picture quite poignantly painted of all sinners apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, we are all left in our sin and in our foolishness. And here's the thing, is that when God leaves people in their foolishness and in their sin, we are getting exactly what we want. We are getting exactly what we want. We are doing exactly what we want, and we will be left to our own designs. We will eat the fruit of our own way and have the fill of our own devices. Were it not for the grace of God, so would it be for every person sitting in this room. Wisdom is clear that things will not go well for the foolish. Verse 32 makes that plain. They're killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But verse 33, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It will go well for those who listen to wisdom. In other words, friends, you will reap what you sow. So in the world, you hear people talk all the time of karma. You know, what goes around comes around. Well, in the church, we can just talk more sensibly than that and say that we reap what we sow. It's a biblical truth. We pursue foolishness, we reap the fruit of it. We pursue wisdom, we reap the fruit of that. So now, friends, I want us to briefly reflect on some of the truths that we've seen in Proverbs today. We spent a lot of time kind of introducing the book, considering Proverbs 1. I want us to think together for just a moment about several things. First, I want us to think about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. I want to unpack that some more. That's like the massive statement in the book of Proverbs, if there ever is one. It's chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All right, so let's think. The fear of the Lord certainly means what? To know who God is. Everybody would agree with that. We start there. We know who God is. The fear of the Lord also means in knowing who God is that we know what he requires. That's only reasonable. And what does God require? And where does he reveal it? He requires perfection and he has revealed it in his law. So if we're going to fear God, we got to start here. Know who he is and know what he requires, namely perfection that he has given in his law. And this kind of fear and reverence and humility before God begins with the acknowledgement that God's law does not, will not, has never graded on a curve. And we don't even have to go to the Old Testament for this. The greatest exposition of the law of God happens in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Here are some words from Jesus in his earthly ministry. He says in Matthew 5, 48, were there any debate... You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's read that again. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. He says also, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were excellent. They were elite at doing the right stuff. And Jesus is like, look, you must be more righteous than them. Jesus goes on to unpack the law. You have heard that it was said that those said to those of old, excuse me, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
He goes on, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as we listen to Christ unpack the law, and we listen to him say, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We say with the psalmist, who can stand? Psalm 130 in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, nobody. If you have your Bibles, I know we're going to get this up on the screen, turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the early chapters of Romans, just really quickly thinking about the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowing who God is and knowing what God requires and what that means for knowledge and wisdom. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to kind of survey some of these verses in a drive-by fashion. Paul has already indicted all of the the brilliant Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 through 32. He says, all of you brilliant people, you are really guilty and under the wrath of God. And he continues. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, Romans 2, 1. O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So just very brief comment on this. When you judge others, you are holding them to a standard. They have not met said standard and therefore you judge them. Well, that same standard that you use in judging other people, you don't live up to either, and so you condemn yourself. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Exactly, because God's a righteous judge. He doesn't sweep evil under the rug. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Of course not. How could you? Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. There's something about repentance that's connected to all this, right? We're going to think about that more together. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, here we go. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12, for all... Have, excuse me, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. This again is where he reminds the Gentiles that they are a law unto themselves. They judge other people and they are condemned by their own standard. And all who have sinned under the law, namely the Jews, will be judged by the law. For it is not, here we go, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. All right, pause button. Paul set this up brilliantly. He made it quite clear. Everybody's guilty on the one hand. He's made it clear that nobody meets their own standard, let alone God's. God is a righteous judge who rewards those who do good and he punishes those who do evil. We're going to fast forward over to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. There's a problem though, a big one. The problem quite simply is that God does reward those who do good and he does punish those who do evil. He's a righteous judge and nobody's good. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off than Gentiles, right? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Paul is just quoting Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah right here. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's very clear. There's nobody. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they haven't known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's true of every human being. Now, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, 
the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Praise God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, that same sermon that we were referencing earlier, where he flat out crushed everybody in this room by telling us that we had to be perfect and by applying the law to our hearts in a way that indicts and damns everybody sitting here. Jesus, in that same sermon, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So my contention this morning from Scripture is that Solomon is exactly right, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that as we think about the fear of the Lord, we must start here. Who is he? What does he require? No one can stand. The Christ has been given for us. Application, run to Jesus. That's where the fear of God begins. We're going to keep thinking about this. So second brief reflection. I'm aware of time. We're getting close. Reflection number two. So we've already thought about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. This is related. Number two, repentance is real wisdom. Repentance is real wisdom. So biblically speaking, what is repentance? The word that's used in the Bible of repentance in the Old and the New Testament means to have a change of mind. That's an important concept. A change of mind. A change of mind about what? A change of mind about God. Who He is. What He requires. A change of mind about us. What I am before Him. Oh Lord, who could stand? That's a change of mind from our natural posture. A change of mind about sin. About what it is and the nature of it and the horror of it. For us to ever see sin as the cosmic treason that it is, right? that change of mind has to happen. Repentance is a change of mind about salvation and about how that is accomplished. Rather than thinking that I'm either going to accomplish legitimate righteousness on my own or relativizing the standard so much that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. Rather than thinking in those ways, we've had a complete 180 in our thinking that I'm done here before God. And the only way that I could ever be saved is through the righteousness that God would give me. Well, we have a change of mind about how that happens because we have a change of mind when it comes to the Christ, the Son of God. So repentance and real wisdom are inextricably linked. Repentance looks something like this. God is right and I am wrong. He is holy and I'm a wretch. I will run to Christ and cast myself on the mercy of God in Him and I will seek to love God and love my neighbor according to God's word. That's repentance, and that's wisdom. We would be like in tremendous error and ridiculously remiss if we start anywhere but here when it comes to what real wisdom is. Third, just brief reflection. This won't surprise anybody. Christ is real wisdom. Christ is real wisdom. Wisdom. We read from 1 Corinthians earlier. I'm going to read some of, those, some of those words again. Paul writes there, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So we want to ask, what is real wisdom at its most basic level? It's that. It's Jesus crucified for sinners. 
Paul writes, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. What did Jesus become to us? He became to us wisdom from God. I mean, can't be overstated. It's like, there it is. Like, in Christ Jesus, being in Christ by faith, he has become to us wisdom from God. We start there. He has become to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does the fear of the Lord produce? Humility. Walking humbly before our God. I want to leave us with words from the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is chapter 14, paragraph 2, on saving faith. Reads this way. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Close quote. Directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, for sanctification, for eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace, not works. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge not only in knowing who God is, but also in knowing what He requires. And brothers and sisters, in knowing that, there is nothing for us to do but to run to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You now just as needy as we were before the sermon started. We pray that You would minister to us by Your Spirit, that what we have considered from Your Word today would penetrate deep into our minds and hearts, that we would be convicted of sin, and that we would bring that to you, that we would confess it to you, that we might be cleansed and forgiven in Christ Jesus. We pray for your spirit to continue to work in us, that you would keep us from sin. Give us grace that we might not stumble. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Give us grace that we might pursue wisdom and live unto you. We have acknowledged together today that the beginning of wisdom is to fear you, and that to fear you is to walk humbly before you and to trust your son as the only hope that we have for salvation. Continue to sustain and strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus, we pray, as we come to the table together in just a few moments. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.